1: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times.
2: And I'm Greg Katz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to do a classic album dissection of one of the best albums of the 1980s, The Replacement's Let It Be. Plus, we'll review the new disc from Steve Earle. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now to welcome a new station.
1: Yes, Greg, Richmond Indie Radio. Richmond, Virginia's WRIR is adding sound opinions. We are thrilled that they have. As you know, whenever a station picks us up and tortures its listeners by adding (laughs) us to the schedule, we like to welcome them by playing a great rock band from their hometown. What have we got from Richmond? The first band I thought of when I thought of Richmond
2: was uh, one of the first bands that I saw in the uh, college rock, the indie rock scene of the 80s out of that area. And that was a band called House of Freaks. Mm. And I thought, you know, as a precursor of these two person bands that are very much in favor these days, you They're know, all you over the place. Bands now. like The Kills and The White Stripes, there's tons of bands like that. Back then, they were a real novelty. And they were not only a novelty, but they were a great band. Brian Harvey and Johnny Hot, two guys up on stage making this big noise. It was impressive. I mean, you were just going, how could two guys make all this sound? They wrote great songs, impressive live, made a string of really fine records. And there's a tragic element to this as well. I mean, Brian Harvey, one of the great musicians out of the Richmond area, died tragically a couple of years ago with his family. And in a way, this is a little bit of a tribute that we're paying to this terrific band. So a tribute
1: to him and a welcome to
2: WRIR. Absolutely. Brian Harvey and Johnny Hot, House of Freaks, and Black Cat Bone on Sound Opinions. Lock
0: them holler on a levy.
1: That's a little bit of Black Cat Bone by Richmond's House of Freaks.
0: You can keep what you want I want none of it they bad men
1: That is a little bit of Radiohead, or at least Tom York, performing I Want None of This. Tom and Johnny Greenwood, the guitarist of Radiohead, stopped by Sound Opinions, Greg. It was in May of 06. Great show. One of the things we were talking to them about at that point was what were they going to do with their much-anticipated seventh album. Their record contract was done. Were they going to re-sign with a major label and go the traditional route? Or were they going to be ready to be the first band... Not, not U2, not R.E.M., no Superstar Act, first band to start this revolution and say, we don't really need a record company anymore. We're big enough that we can just distribute our music directly to the fans via the internet. Well, it's kind of a complicated story, but that's basically what Radiohead has decided to do. Starting October 10th, they are going to be offering their new album, In Rainbows, on their website with a model that is much like public radio. If you think there is worth in this new music, you can choose to pay whatever you can. $0.80, $8, $80. You can take the music for free. They're taking a leap of faith and thinking that by offering this music as a download, people will support the band. They're going to put it out on an official release on CD next year. So it's not like it's never going to come out, but that's a long enough time, three months, that it's it's not like two weeks before we're going to leak the album and then it's going to be in stores. They're taking a leap of faith and believing that people are going to buy this record. It's also going to be available in a rather pricey $80 box set edition with vinyl, so that there's different levels of what you can buy. But basically, this music's going to be there for free. The question it's going to pose is, are people going to buy it, or are people just going to take it?
2: Last year, when we had Radiohead in the studio... Tom York was asked directly by you, was this going to be the shot heard around the world? And yeah. here's what he had to say.
3: I think it's a shame that the industry itself was so utterly dim-witted that they didn't sort of see this coming. But they were far too busy reselling the entire back catalogue of Neil Young and Rolling Stones and all this lot and it's sort of now come back to haunt them because they ain't got nothing else to flog again. As far as we're concerned, it's all about effort and energy and whether we really can be asked to start a revolution at this particular moment where actually the first priority is all the other stuff. If it was a natural part of the evolution of what was going on, you know, and if the energy from the music required that we did that, then we would do it. Um, I think it's great to pick fights. I love picking fights. However... There has to be a natural reason to do it, not just yeah. one where you feel that, that this, this ought to happen.
1: Wow. Fascinating stuff, huh, Greg? <laughs> they were clearly thinking long and hard about this. The Los Angeles Times yesterday ran an editorial. Only in Los Angeles would this happen. With a major metropolitan daily newspaper in America devotes editorial space to Radiohead. Since you're doing this share with us the results because the key thing here is going to be how many people actually buy the music and how many people take it for free well the coup would be if
2: they get all these downloads and people pay whatever for them the record eventually comes out officially the early part of next year and debuts at number one that would be the coup i don't know if that's possible because everybody who wants it's gonna get it but consider that their previous three albums have all leaked well before release date onto the internet were widely shared This started really with Kid A in 2001. People were talking about that album. There was a huge buzz on the internet. Debuts at number one. Now, what's interesting, Jim, I think, about this and what's different about this is that it is truly revolutionary because Prince did this in the 90s when he broke free from Warner Brothers. He used his website basically as a record company. Buy my record directly from me. But he was sort of hamstrung by the fact that he had to actually deliver the physical record to everybody who ordered it. And and he had trouble keeping up. It was a mess. Radiohead now has figured out 10 years later, we've got this great distribution system. It's called the Internet. We don't have to send a physical anything to anyone. So it's amazing. They've got the distribution problem solved. And if they do solve it, if it does prove to be a success... I think what we have here is the final nail in the coffin of the 20th century record industry. Yeah, it's either
1: the beginning or the end. I don't know which which analogy we (laughs) want to go to. I I think you're completely wrong. I think it, it, it in one fell swoop, makes the Billboard charts forever irrelevant again. If they sell a million records just online, physical product matters no more. It'll dwindle, and then it'll be irrelevant. Well, the, the key point there, though, is sell it. Are they going to be able to sell it? Well, that's what we have to see. Yeah. And you know, is it true Generation Y doesn't want to pay for music, or will they pay what they consider fair? Will they pay 8 or $10?
2: The other thing to, to note about this, Jim, is that Radiohead is not every band. Radiohead is perhaps the most respected brand name, to use a really noxious term. <laughs> no term it, they would hate. In rock music. Fans love this band. They're incredibly loyal. They probably will want three versions of this record. They will go out and get the download. Yeah. They will buy the box set, oh, and maybe. they will
1: buy the physical CD. A lot of them I'm curious to will. see if the major labels hire people to download that music, take it for free, and subvert the notion that anybody would be paying Radiohead for its largesse.
2: You're assuming the major labels are smart, but they're not. and
0: you never be.
2: rebel and he'll never be any good Phil Spector produced a song by the Crystals from 1962 which may well apply to Phil Spector today Spector, who for the last five months has been on trial in Los Angeles for the murder of a woman four years ago at his mansion the trial has ended in a hung jury, apparently the jury could not decide whether he was guilty or not ten people on the jury apparently thought he was guilty two people could not be convinced that he was the trial was declared a mistrial, and apparently there will not be a new trial until at least next spring. So Phil Spector's future left dangling after this five-month trial. You know, Jim, it's interesting. We've seen all the courtroom shots of Spector. We've heard all the lurid details about this case. Spector, with each passing month, looks more and more to the general public like this freak guy living as a recluse in his Complete mansion, weirdo, yeah. waving guns around, pointing them at people, shooting people. I mean, there have been all these stories that have come out over the over the past decades of Spectre loving his handguns, pointing them at people, waving them around in recording studios. Now he's been implicated in the shooting. Uh, this trial is just going to drag on and on. Lost in all of this, I think, uh, has been the fact that this man was one of the architects of rock and roll music as we know it in the 60s. A lot of people tend to forget that now well, yeah, uh, I mean, as a result it, of this trial.
1: It, it's kind of old news. The trial Trial now, and 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 I wonder, you know, what'll even happen at this point. Whether anybody'll even be interested as it goes to round two of the yeah. trial, I attempt to try again. I think the tragedy here, Greg, is is twofold. Number one, the history of his musical accomplishments has been forgotten. It's very easy to dismiss him as just this freak, like you said. Number two, you know, for how long his weird, eccentric behavior has been tolerated in the name of his genius. Mm-hmm. This, of course, as we see Britney Spears meltdown in full view of the world in public, it's just sad and tragic. You know. This is a very talented person that doesn't mean they also don't have problems and when we kind of like encourage them for their problems everybody put up with phil Spector's being on the edge of violence and and having this fascination with guns and uh, kidnapping the ramones when they were making end of the century not letting (laughs) them out of the studio and you know Ronnie Spector his wife uh, after he produced the Ronettes that ended very badly and she accused him of a lot of foul things we've known this was a troubled man for a long time it's been in full view of the world and it's it's tolerated because he has this genius meanwhile the musical accomplishments are forgotten in light of the the, the things that he's done in his life well let's let's look briefly at what that genius was because a lot
2: of people i think have forgotten first of all jim i think this guy totally reinvented the game of production being a producer in rock music. Prior to him, producers were sort of along the Sam Phillips model. They stuck up some microphones, they let the band perform live, they were a sounding board, they wanted to get the sound of that band in the room together. Spector took it to another level. He used the studio as his instrument. He was in control. In a way, he was the artist. He was bigger than the artist. Right. He assembled the artists, he orchestrated them, he arranged them, he produced them, he made them sound a certain way. If they didn't get it right, he made them play it again. And again and again And again and again again, again. There are
1: tales of of 60, 70 takes He would demand from someone like Tina Turner
2: And he was a visionary He understood what he was doing And he had a widescreen vision of that The whole idea is Quote, the little symphonies for the kids
1: Three minutes of this incredibly Densely orchestrated pop music The wall of sound People hear that again and again and again It's one of those things that's accepted It's a cliche We wanted to show or illustrate As we can on the radio show What the wall of sound actually is First of all he had the best musicians in Los Angeles. People may not appreciate the
2: level of the musicianship on those records, but it was there. These were the very best musicians in the best music town in America at that time. Right, Los which Angeles. means the world, right. You know, Glenn Campbell, Hal Blaine, you know, Glenn Campbell, before he was Glenn Campbell playing guitar on this right. record, one of four or five guitars.
1: Well, was the idea was yeah. to duplicate three or four basses, four or five guitars, the several layers. grand pianos.
2: Yeah, Hal Blaine on drums, one of the great drummers of all time. Leon Russell Who was Leon Russell, one of the great piano players of all time? Before he became a solo artist, he was playing piano Mm -hmm. on on these Phil Spector records. So he assembled these guys, put a singer in front of them Ronnie Spector, Darlene Love, Tina Turner, great singers, and commanded, oversaw these incredibly ambitious. Real time performances. It, there wasn't overdubbing in this era. I, Spectre did not believe in overdubbing. He wanted a live performance. So it was take after take after take. And if you think about what Spectre did, I don't think we have a Beatles revolver. I don't think we have a Pet Sounds from the Beach Boys. These were all directly inspired by him. And I think today, when you think about producers like Dr. Dre and the Neptunes and Timbaland, these producers who have a sound and a vision in the studio, it's all aligned directly back to Phil Spector, where the producer is the guy in charge and in a way is an artist in his own right.
1: Greg, let's hear uh, an example of this. "River Deep, Mountain High" is a song that Spector thought was his finest moment. Did it with Ike and Tina Turner. Mainly, it's it's Tina's show. Yeah. And boy, she was a voice to match his vision for what this music had to be. This is an extraordinary production. It's as good as it gets. What is it? Three minutes, right? Yeah. A- and it's 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 symphonic in its scope and and incredibly powerful. And again, all live, mm-hmm. happening in the moment. Here's Phil Spector's production of "River Deep, Mountain High."
0: i
2: River Deep Mountain High from Ike and Tina Turner, the classic Wall of Sound production by Phil
1: Spector from 1966. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to do one of our periodic classic album dissections where we dig deep into a great record. This week, The Replacements Let It Be.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Time now for one of my favorite aspects of this show, when we dig deep into a classic album, and uh, this week it's The Replacements, Let It Be, from 1984. Jim, what we try to do when we do one of these album dissections is to look beyond... The Surface songs, the songs that everybody knows from a particular album, put it in context, discuss how it was made, why it was made, and why it was so important. This was a band of four scruffy guys from Minneapolis. Since then, one of them has died, Bob Stinson. The others have not gone on to fame and fortune. These are This was not a big rock superstar band, but this record, still 23 years later, Holds up remarkably well. One well, of those I think records so. we were just listening to a few days ago,
1: yeah. driving around in the same town where these guys grew up. Well, we were in Minneapolis and we we're riding around the lakes and we're blasting <laughs> this album. It was a great, great moment. We're in a Minneapolis frame of mind. We want to do this album. I think though, uh you know, certainly Revolver by the Beatles is accepted as a classic. We've done Sly Stone records, we've done albums that have sold a lot and been critical masterpieces. I think this album didn't sell, and a lot of critics didn't recognize how brilliant it was at the time, but it was a revolutionary record. It's one of the great Lost Classics of rock and roll history, period, and especially the 80s. A period when people like Paul Westerberg, the leader of the placements, the singer and songwriter, Bob Stinson, the uh, the scary, large, uh, sort of violent, often drunk guitarist, the, the idiot savant, if you will, mm-hmm. his younger brother, barely 15 or 16 when, when the band started, Tommy Stinson on bass, Chris Mars, the silent drummer, these four guys were rewriting the rule book. This was
2: the great shining moment of this band. They made other albums since then that had been more widely celebrated, but they really got put on the map with Let It Be. It was their fourth record. They'd made basically three records in Minneapolis that were fairly obscure. They were known to sort of a, a certain community of fanzine editors and indie music fans, but you could count those people on, on two hands in some cities in the United States. Let It Be came out, and and suddenly there was this sense around the country that important and great things
1: were happening in Minneapolis and it wasn't just because of Prince Greg, to get this discussion rolling and for the historical perspective we turn to our colleague, rock critic Jim Walsh who covered them from the start of their career was there at the first gig, often shared bills with his own band with The Replacements he's put out a fine oral history called The Replacements all over but the shouting, which is coming out next month we recorded our conversation with Jim down at The Current in Minneapolis when we were there last week This is the first
2: book about The Replacements, which I actually I'm very surprised about, Jim, but I can think of no one more qualified than Jim Walsh to write this book because you were playing in bands alongside The Replacements. I believe you were at their first gig sure, in yeah. Minneapolis. You were kind of with them every step of the way. You were an it, eyewitness to history, Jim. <laughs> it, it's, it's sort of amazing when it, my editor said to
4: me when we kind of finally got the galleys and were going over the last thing, we were sitting there and he goes, you were sort of doomed to write this book. <laughs> and it's true because Paul and Chris and I went to Catholic grade school and high school in Minneapolis, and there's a very similar sort of water that y'all drink from that. And then,
1: yeah, we were all in bands. Well, that's a good place to start. We want to dig deep, Jim, when we do these album dissections into how the album was made and how it strikes us, what endures about it. But before we get to Let It Be and where the replacements were when they made this record... Bring us up to speed on who they were at that point. I mean, I remember the first time I saw the replacements. I told you this story for the book. Mm-hmm. They came out. They were a maximum rock and roll underground punk hype. I saw them in, in Hoboken, New Jersey at Maxwell's. They came. They were awful. They were horrible. There were all these Mohawks there, expected a punk band because they'd been written up, up in maximum rock and roll. And they got this guy singing kind of Rolling Stone songs badly. And, uh, and then the replacements ended their set, but Paul wasn't done. So he invited the Mohawks, who had been taunting him and throwing beer at him all night, on stage. Paul went behind the drums and played Louie Louie for half an hour with these guys who couldn't play, who picked up the rest of the guy's instruments. You know, Bob was already getting drunker at the bar by that point. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I said, that's when I said, wow, now the whole set mm-hmm. was lousy, but there's something special here. Mm-hmm. And I just went to see them because any you went to see anybody on a Saturday night.
4: Right. And they were, you know, around that time they were doing these, they called them poop sets and they would be, they would be jazz sets. They would play jazz mm-hmm. and it was fascinating. You know, what what is this? They were decidedly not trendy. And if that was their reaction at that show, you know, they were an alternative to alternative to alternative to an alternative to punk. So when you know, they were getting they, a hipster they, buzz, so
1: they would react against it.
4: A hipster hardcore buzz. And certainly mm-hmm. as, as Hootenanny, Hootenanny was a reaction to Stink and anybody, you know, thinking they were a hardcore band. It was so just,
1: Hootenanny is their second album. Hootenanny, Hootenanny yeah. was
4: their third record i mean it was sorry ma was their first record first full-length album then stink was the ep and then Hoot
2: Nanny came after that right. setting the context leading up to let it be which was their fourth record roughly 1980 1983 84 that period of time you had the hardcore punk scene the black flag the mohawks hardcore skinheads that was the big scene in the underground uh, you had New Wave kind of morphing over mm-hmm. into the synth pop. You had Flock of Seagulls on the mm-hmm. on the radio and Culture Club. And then you had these big mega mainstream bands. You know, it was the era of the Blockbuster album, the Michael Jacksons, the uh, Princes, the Bruce Springsteens. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the replacements really didn't fit with any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, their contemporaries in the Minnesota scene, Husker Du, mm-hmm. you know, their first record, Land Speed record, you know, hardcore punk record. It was kind of understandable where they were coming from, whereas the replacements, it seemed like... Right. As you were saying, not really fitting in with any of these things.
4: But but Husker Du was also stretching their yeah. whole thing with Zen Arcade that year. So um, they were paying
2: attention, too. They were not—Husker They didn't, Husker Du did not want to be pigeonholed, either. Right. But they were sort of moving in the same direction as the, as the replacements were, but that was roughly right. their third or fourth record where they made that big statement record. Right. Uh, it was a right. great year for that underground rock because I remember Let It Be came out that year in 84— Zen Arcade by Husker Du came out that year. And we had also the Minutemen with Double Double Notes on the Dime. Three Mm -hmm. really important statements of that whole underground music scene, independent music scene at the time.
4: And in Minneapolis, it was
1: Purple Rain, Let It Be, Zen Arcade. Yeah. You know, so it was... (laughs) Okay, so Jim, you interviewed everybody who was anybody and collected all the archival interviews from the time to tell this oral history in your book. Did the replacements go into the studio? Into um, was it black Blackberry? Blackberry way, way. yeah. Mm-hmm. Did they go into the studio to make a statement record, or or was this just the collection of songs that they had that would wind up being a phenomenal collection? I, I think that that you know Hoot had been a.
4: I mean, I I tell a story in the preface about you know me kind of bitching at Paul one night and saying you know what are, what are you guys doing you knuckleheads you know you this great <laughs> band and I had seen them. For a couple of years, and they, they just like, they bored me silly. And mm-hmm. I swore them off. You're like, I don't need to go see this anymore. It's just, you were done with the replacements. Mm. They had not uncorked one of those just transcendent things for, it felt like a year and a half. So Hoot Nanny was that, and mm-hmm. it was around that time. And they probably were just getting bored with themselves. Mm-hmm. Also, they had toured with REM, mm. and I think they, that it probably made them feel like a real band. And like, wow, this is this is something that is viable. Beyond that, it's just, I think it's just as an aesthetic thing, I think they just, you know, Paul's songwriting just ratcheted up. Yeah. Um, Why? You know,
1: Where did that come from? Because as maturity, we said, the, the first I three think... records, they had little gems that said, this could be a great band that could write great songs. Right. But then there was a lot of noise.
0: Tommy gets his tonsils out. and why
1: let it be is the exact opposite there are bursts of noise Tommy gets his tonsils out right right but song after song that it's just so deep and moving and like where did this come from
4: I guess that I would I would say that probably the REM tour a lot of people were writing about him and that that affects an artist you know Peter Buck's calling you the greatest rock and roll band in America Mm -hmm. Uh, you step up a little bit
1: I think but but still the sense of humor I mean because Greg and I have interviewed Westerberg any number of times. Refuses to take himself seriously. There, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people, Jim, that we've all interviewed mm-hmm. that are happy to be the new Dylan mm-hmm. and that are being there. We could we could go well, see Ryan Adams, ta- you know. And uh... well, let me tell you how I came up with that, late, Jim. Yeah, exactly. It came to me in a... the source of my brilliance stems yeah. from. You know, Westerberg seemed really even more so than many people freaked out when people would begin to talk about how deep unsatisfied was, how deep sixteen blue was, and and I wonder if Gary's got a. And the cover of Black Diamond by Kiss and Tommy gets his tonsils out are the reaction to that. Because no. there are two sides of this guy. No, There's he, an absurdist. Yeah, but he was terrified of too. Bob Stinson, too. <laughs> all right. No, you're not tell- Ex- I mean, explain, Jay. Explain. I, no,
4: I think that that is very much at the crux of why they were great. If you're in a band and you're the guy and all you've got is yes, man, yes, 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 yes. Oh, great idea, great. Yeah. it's It's a horrible rock band. So it's like you got Bob Stinson. On your left, yeah. and Curtis Ace says this very well in the book too. Kurt knew those guys before they were the replacements. He knew he he practiced in this band uh, next to the Stinsons' house. It's a he, longtime Curtis, Minneapolis Curtis, right. rock scene stalwart. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Kurt is like the dean of scream in Minneapolis. He's, <laughs> right, he's and but he says that Bob
1: would come to practice and watch those guys and just sneer. So six but, but, foot, six he, foot something. About 250 pounds, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a presence who yeah. would sometimes, I remember, memorable sets. One where he wrapped himself in cellophane mm-hmm. to play at CBGB's. Another where he was wearing like a baby diaper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tutus. Don't yeah, was very P-funk when you think about it. It was yeah. very P-funk. <laughs> I don't know if that's where he got it. And yeah. sort of scary because he was well, yeah. drunk and tottering and teetering. But all, you, you didn't know when he came up to you whether he was going to slug you or give you a hug. <laughs> right.
4: I think it terrified Paul more than amused him. And it, it's just, <laughs> wow. imagine...
1: So you're saying Paul didn't get feedback from the band he was had to get it from outside bob was like a hardcore critic
4: mm. on, on his left and anyone who's ever been in a band knows what that dynamic is it's it's very much like you bring a song to the band and they go what is this and then you then you gotta come with gary's gotta i hate music or or, mm-hmm. or whatever because it's you can hide behind that When "Let It Be" started coming together, he was he was bringing demo stuff to Peter Jesperson, their manager and mentor and friend and uh, co-producer, label the album. guy, right? Peter acted as a muse. I'm not saying Paul was writing for Peter, but that was a very sensitive
2: outlet. Jesperson it sounded like was the one voice that Paul could look to when he wanted to write these more sensitive songs. That the other guys were just going, "Get this out of here," right? To right. Brian Epstein exactly. kind of thing in yeah. a lot of ways. Exactly, exactly. You know, in later interviews, he would sort of fess up to the idea that he had to sort of uh, summon up his courage to write The Unsatisfied, you know, amidst the Gary's machine. got the you know, he had to placate those guys, and he had to sort of honor that side of the band mm-hmm. for a long time, right? And you know, and remember Jim when he when he went solo. That was one of the reasons he justified it. Now I can write whatever I want. I don't have to please anyone but myself. Now right. I can write these kinds of songs. And of right. course, you know, Westerberg's never been as great as he was when he did have those guys as kind of the the skeptics around him. Mm-hmm. So it was a
1: really a, a beautiful moment in time for this band the balance was almost perfect. Maybe right. we're assuming Jim buys something that that, that he doesn't. I mean, because for, for Greg and I, the reason we're doing the album dissection, we think it's their finest moment. I maintain that you can, I can play for a 17-year-old hardcore fan or a sensitive 17-year-old singer-songwriter, yes. songwriter, let it be, and he or she's going to have their mind blown. Absolutely. Because it stands. I think it stands it, their
4: best album. And I think that they, throughout their entire career, they were looking to that. They were not mm. trendy. And mm-hmm. I, I agree. I mean, I and that's the thrill of putting this book together is that you know, this Christmas there's going to be you know, some cool uncle or aunt or somebody is going to give some 16 year old kid and go, here, this is why I'm so screwed up.
2: Gathering from the chronology that you've uh, put together in All Over But the Shouting, I Will Dare seems mm-hmm. like this kind of a starting point the transition from hootenanny where you started to hear the songs mm-hmm. that this band was capable of and then i will dare another leap up altogether a song that everybody seems to agree that if that song had been released in 1992 uh oh. would have been a top five worldwide single well, along the lines of smells like Team Spirit." nirvana yeah. smells mm-hmm. like Teen spirit it just had you I know had, of that. Yeah. you know the yeah. wrong timing it was eight years too soon but it was that good of a song.
4: The reason we seize on "I Will Dare" is because it's a pop song, yeah, and it's 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 shimmers coming out of every any speaker dashboard Mm -hmm. or show you're at.
1: There's not a lot of production on the first three recordings, the replacements released, and suddenly there is. They're doing finger snaps, they're doing maracas, they're doing percussion, they're, they're doing, doing the- Peter Buck's mandolin. Peter Buck's mm-hmm. mandolin. Chan Pauling comes in and plays keyboards. Mm-hmm. There's uh, the answering machine. On answering machine. Were they starting to have fun in the studio? I mean, I, you get the impression when you listen to The Replacements mm-hmm. Stink and Sorry Ma Forgot to Take Out the Trash, th- these were records made in like two hours, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. wish they could have done it in 30 minutes. Paul even said he
4: likes producers who work fast, and that's very understandable with rock and roll especially. It's like, you know, you've written the song, you want to get it down mm-hmm. as, you, as you have written it. You want that spirit encased or something. I think there was a sense, a real respect for the songs. And so I think that they just went, you know, we have to render these as imaginatively as the songs are written.
2: But I think what you're getting at, Jim Walsh, is the... um the spontaneity in the moment for this band was all, all it was about. And right. it, it seemed like every stage show was that way, too. It, it was not thought about ahead of time. It was not thought about afterward. What do we feel right. like right now? And and that's the way it's always seemed to be with that band. That's That was the charm of it. There, that's absolutely right on. And, and it was not an intellectual experience. Yeah.
4: It was this communal thing. And some nights it would just lay there because it just wasn't happening. Yeah. But the nights when when all the forces came together and coagulated... <laughs> it was it like i keep saying funnel cloud or something it 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 really felt like that like something's happening here something's happening and you wrote it and you you knew it was the clock was ticking you knew this band was unlike any anything else that came before or since really mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: We want to thank Jim Walsh, our friend and a colleague with The Replacements All Over But the Shouting and oral History. Jim, thank you for being
1: on the show. Thanks, you guys. It was a pleasure. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with more of our classic album dissection of The Replacements, Let It Be. Then we'll review the new record from Steve Earle, Washington Square Serenade. sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg, when we do these classic album dissections, we try to play a track that epitomizes the record, that stands as a timeless representation of a great overall work. Let It Be by The Replacements is a spectacular record from start to finish. This song, though, is is just one of the best in rock history. Absolutely, Jim.
2: Unsatisfied, without a doubt, is the key track on Let It Be. Every time this song plays, it brings a little tear to the eye, a little chill up the spine. Absolutely. Uh, it's an emotional bloodletting that really was a revelation for, for the replacements in Westerberg. I think part of the key to this song, Jim, was that the courage that Westerberg had to muster up to even do it, because the replacements were a bunch of wisecracking guys who didn't appreciate sentimentality or any kind of emotion that wasn't juvenile in some ways. They were
1: not an emo band.
2: And Paul Westerberg, however, was growing up, and and the fact that he was able to wear his heart on his sleeve this way really said a lot about him as a songwriter and his growth as a songwriter. He makes this song not only with his lyrics and vocal, but the instrumentation, the 12-string guitar, the lap steel, things you didn't hear on punk records very Mm -hmm. much at that time, but it creates this amazing emotional atmosphere with the music he plays.
1: You know, it's a song about not getting none, you know? Yeah. The Rolling Stones in the 60s has Satisfaction. I think the indie rock 80s, the post-punk generation had Unsatisfied. Who can't relate to that fact of being 20-something, having no significant relationship in your life? Just one night stands if you're lucky. And- On the bigger level, is this all there is in my life? You know, earlier in that record, they sing about bacon and cigarettes. What a lousy dinner. (laughs) That's what those guys were living on. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's asking himself, isn't there more? I feel like I have more to say and more to do in life, but I can't get out of this town. With this song and with Let It Be, they would get out of this town. They would be known by some people at least. I think they created a timeless classic that's up there with satisfaction, and uh, we just have to play it. It's unsatisfied by the replacements. that voice that's the other thing Greg what a vocal performance unsatisfied by the replacements you know Let It Be has only sold about 250,000 copies to this day it's a crime but it doesn't matter you know another guy from Minneapolis St. Paul said in American lives there were no second acts it wouldn't matter replacements created a perfect album it's worth seeking out and people's lives will be better if they do
0: Sunset <laughs> <laughs> My on the floor new York City it won't be bad no more't
2: no more, boss. Won't see me around. Goodbye, guitar time. That's the leadoff track of Steve Earle's new album. The album is called Washington Square Serenade, and the song is called Tennessee Blues. He is driving north. Out of Nashville, Tennessee. Yep. And heading into New York City with a redhead by his side who happens to be his latest wife, Allison Moore.
1: Number seven. <laughs> oh. Seven times
2: married. So you gotta love Steve Earle. He tells you exactly what you need to know right up front, the first chapter <laughs> of his new novel. Uh, he's a very
1: literary kind of guy. Well, and Guitar Town was also the name of the album that really put him on the map. So he's he's talking also about buy to that musical. Style. That's right. Twenty-one years ago, Guitar Town
2: put Steve Earle on the Nashville map. A lot of people thought this Texas singer-songwriter was going to reinvent and recharge country music in the mid-'80s. It didn't happen. He was too radical for country, too country for rock. He uh, has made a career out of sort of slipping between the cracks of genres a little bit of folk. He's played some bluegrass. He's incorporated rock music. He's incorporated country music, dozen solo records, and a very, very highly respected songwriter. The twist on this record, in addition to his uh, move to New York City, which sort of sets the emotional landscape for this record and his new relationship with his wife, is the uh, relationship with his producer, John King, who was half of the Dust Brothers, very well known for their work on Landmark albums like Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys and Beck's Odelay, the way they incorporate loops and electronic beats and samples. Earl is bringing a little bit of this into the palette here, so it's basically an electro folk record that he's made here. Let's hear a little bit of the 12th studio record from Steve Earl. It's called Days Ain't Long Enough, a duet with his wife, Alison Moore, on Sound Opinions.
0: Another year is coming. Oh on parade Show their colors when they fade But that woman
1: Are never long enough that Steve Earle duetting with his wife Alison Moore on a track from Washington Square Serenade, his new album. Incredibly prolific, Steve is, uh, Greg. As you've said, uh, we've heard him do all sorts of things, including on the last two albums, Jerusalem in 2002 and The Revolution Starts Now in 2004. Absolutely searing. Angry, acidic critiques of the state of the world Mm -hmm. against right-wing politics, against the wars that we're involved in, and actually offering understanding for why the Muslim world is upset at us trying to question what's going on in the world. Now Steve's inside himself. A happy Steve Earle is a really unusual <laughs> Steve Earle. This is a man who's who's fought off, famously, a heroin addiction, mm-hmm. has done time in prison. As I said, let me underscore this, married seven times. And in all that time, I don't think I've ever heard him happy and content and singing a song like he just did with Alison Moore. So that's strange. The production is also strange, although I love it. Mm-hmm. This is a futuristic looped, sampled production at times, but it's done in a back porch hootenanny way. So it's like the sampler is being powered by like a mule that's walking around the field or something. Wow, it's weird. Um, It took me longer to get into this record than any by Steve, including his Bluegrass foray, and I got two serious problems with it, and I'll tell you what those are. Satellite Radio is just a cheesy hokum track. He happens to have a talk radio show on that medium, so it's like very (laughs) self-referential. And then also, there's an awful cover of Tom Waits. Now, I don't like Tom Waits to begin with. I don't want to hear Steve Earle covering Tom Waits way down in the hole. And what's more it happens to be the theme song for an hbo series called the wire that he's an actor on so it's like hey steve man all this cross-promotional synergy is tawdry and below you because you are famously an independent free spirit maverick and what's all of a sudden with all this like referencing yourself that's okay he's in love i'll give him a pass overall i really like the album and if it's not what you expected first from earl there are rewards here so it's it's a buy it record for me
2: well, Jim, I, I have to say that Steve, uh, ever since he put the Revolution Blues on a, on a commercial uh, a oh, yeah, couple that was years a ago, he licensed too. that. That, w- that was an odd one as well. This has all the makings of the Midlife Crisis record. I'm leaving my past <laughs> behind. I'm moving to a new city with a new girl. I'm reinventing my sound. You know, Some of it works. Some of it doesn't. He's still a very fine songwriter. I miss some of the, the political broadsides of the recent records. There's still a lot of anger in this record, but it's sort of couched in these biblical metaphors. He's done a few of these songs where there's Apocalypse Now on the horizon. I met my yeah. mother and my father and my, my sister on the road to
1: Jericho, and I know there's there's trouble ahead, yeah.
2: and there's going to be tears shed. Uh, and there's so- some
1: kind of metaphor he's finding in Pale male, the the hawk that was like boosted out by gentrification in New York City I'm not quite sure what he's saying about that
2: Right, so it's a little vaguer The love songs are beautiful, the one we just played with uh, Alison Moore, Days Aren't Long Enough It's a beautiful song, he writes another wonderful song, obviously inspired by his new love, Sparkle and Shine Some of the prettiest music he's made My baby, Sparkle and Shine Sparkle and Shine Sparkle and Shine baby So it's an interesting she album for Steve Earle. Earl. i got to say, I'm not sure I like the happy Steve as much as I like the angry <laughs> Steve. So I'm going to give it a burn it. It's not a full-on buy it. I think there's some problems with this record. I like the sonic experimentation. I think he's written some very fine songs here, and he's written some songs where he
1: just seems to be phoning it in. I was on the cusp, Greg. I went with a buy it. You went with a burn it. Fair enough. Greg, we have some thank yous to say. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by the ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with Dave Mahler putting up with us as our intern, doing a fine job. We want to thank Cliff Bentley in Minneapolis and the folks at The Current for uh, recording Jim Walsh with us, and Tori Malatia, our executive producer, our fearless leader. He was partying in Minneapolis while we were there. I saw him trying to get Garrison Keillor to do a duet on karaoke to Muskrat Love, and that's when <laughs> I walked out of the party. I'm just telling him...
2: sound opinions everyone's a critic so now it's time to hear what you have to say
0: new messages
2: hey jim and greg
0: uh
1: this is andrew from aurora illinois i just wanted to comment on your review of eddie vetter's record for the new movie into the wild but i just wanted to
2: take issue with your criticism about some of the lyrics from the soundtrack it was uh, my understanding that uh, Sean Penn, the director, asked Vetter to bring the internal life of the main character alive through his music. And if you read the book, you realize he was a 21-year-old kid that was pretty wrapped up with a lot of the ideas he had discovered during college. And uh, rather than characterize the album as Vetter's first solo record with some unfortunate lyrics, maybe we should remember that it's for a movie with a specific purpose to communicate this uh, inner life of a main character anyway that's it guys i love the show good work keep it up bye
1: Hey, this is Dana Blumrosen. I listen to you uh, in Santa Cruz, California. Um, I was so thrilled this week that you guys ended up reviewing Into the Wild, the Eddie Vedder album, Uh, not because I actually would ever go out and buy an Eddie Vedder album, but because you brought back memories of my first year in college when I had that Indio album and that amazing song, Hard Sun, which I kind of wish you guys had played the original
0: of because it's so great as well. When I walk her I am a better man When I look to leave her I always stagger back again Thanks for putting that back on my radar. You're absolutely right. I uh, will definitely keep my eyes open for the re-release of the Indio album. You always keep me uh, thinking and making connections about music, which is so much fun. Thanks again. There's a big, a big hard sun the big people mm, in the big, hard world. Hi, this is Diane from Rolling Meadows. I'm a long time listener and member. Did I just hear you insult the entire baby boom generation over a Springsteen song? we the stream of The gist of the conversation, I believe, was that we were all enamored and that our bubble was burst, and I, I think that probably the baby boom generation had been disillusioned from the very beginning. It was pretty much a cut to an entire generation. And um I was offended by it. The girls in the summer Pass me by
4: Hi, this is Stephen from Chicago. Boy, the comment on uh, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street band really hit the mark, I think. I remember back in the eighties living in Germany at the height of the Bruce Springsteen uh, Born to run, but whatever the hell that was. And uh, kind of arriving and having all these Germans think, oh my God, this is this is the image of America, which is what Bruce Springsteen still sells today. I think it's true. He's selling the,
1: the myth. He's not selling the great music. He's not selling the red uh, guitar at three chords and the truth, what used to be sold. So thanks for the comments, guys.
0: No more messages.